right, well, it is a Children's Church Sunday, so I'll encourage the kids who are fourth grade and down, if you'd like to, you're welcome to join the Van Langenbergs downstairs. And uh, for everyone else here, we will be in Psalm uh, 142. This is, a, in many ways, a difficult psalm. You can see by the title I've given this, um, When I Am Ready to Give Up. Uh, it's not exactly an uplifting psalm on the start. But I fear so often we face these kinds of struggles alone. Which one of us has not been in that exact situation? Maybe you showed up here today just like that. You say, you know what, there are weeks, there are times where right now even, I'm ready to just throw in the towel. I need a break. This is the psalm that's written from that place. Uh, God deals with us honestly. He doesn't expect us or want us to have a Pollyanna outlook on like on life. Rather, he expects that we will face trials, and he equips us to actually face them. And This psalm is one of these that has been precious to me in that way, and I wanted to share it with you today. Well, let's pray together and ask for God's help as we look at this text. God, this text is a stark reminder to us of just how needy we are before you. Which one of us have not faced this exact struggle of feeling like we're ready to just throw in the towel, of feeling discouraged and despondent? And yet you meet us in these places. You actually draw us near. There's a quiet place of solitude for us with you in these places. I pray that for anyone here who comes here to worship this morning with this perspective, this struggle right now in their own soul, that you would meet their need. Ultimately, that you wouldn't meet it with mere information or knowledge. That You wouldn't meet it with giving them more tasks to do, but that you would meet it with yourself, with your own person. And that as you care for them, that you would draw them close to you. That is our desire today, to be drawn to you, to worship you for who you truly are, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. As I stand up here, I see a few faces that are new to me, so I just figured I'd let you know kind of our purpose here in gathering. We gather each Sunday morning primarily to declare things about God. That's why we've been singing to him. That's why we've been praying to him. What we've been trying to do is to say, God, you are good. God, you are great. And in these various ways. Now, this preaching of the word is the way that God has set apart is kind of the pinnacle experience of that time. Because God is ready to speak to us. Our job then, before we even hear a word from him, is to say, God, whatever you say this morning, the answer is yes. I'll respond, yes. Whatever you want, yes. I'll bow to it. And whenever we hit into an area of the Scripture that hits a very particular crowd of people, there are always going to be two people listening. The kinds of people that say, that's where I'm at right now, and the kinds of people that say, I'm not there right now. So depending on where you're at, that will change your listening experience. I'd encourage you if you say, you know what, this sounds a lot like how I feel right now, that God really is speaking to you this morning, and He, he has a word for you. If you say, you know what, I'm not here right now, let me encourage you to listen carefully because don't we all hit these patterns regularly? It's not been too long that I realized that probably every six-ish weeks for me, maybe a little bit more than that, six or seven weeks, I hit three or four days in a row of just real discouragement for no noticeable reason. Are you like that too? Where you just come, come into these regular patterns of discouragement. And I think I'm a pretty optimistic person. I think I'm a go-getter. I think I'm not prone to that. But We all hit these kinds of periods, and rather than brushing over them, God actually engages us in these moments, and this is what he's done today. 
What I'd like to do is just make a few opening observations as we look at this together, and then we'll actually dive into the text proper. First of all, did you notice that this psalm is, much of this psalm, is a prayer? You'll see that in verse 1. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. He's talking about God, but then he turns and specifically addresses God. Look like verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge. So much of the psalm is a prayer, although he kind of goes in and out of prayer. David likely wrote this, secondly, on the run. You can see the little superscription up top that this is likely a psalm of David when he was in the cave. You might remember that there are several times where David was running and fleeing for his life and found himself in a cave. And there's actually another psalm that references likely this exact same scenario. And I think it's instructive for us, even before we look at Psalm 142, to note Psalm 57. You might want to just jot that down and take a look at it this afternoon. In that psalm, he's also in a place of discouragement, but his speech sounds much more confident and triumphant. Like, God, you will rescue me. I'm ready for it. I can't wait for you to rescue me. And in this psalm, he's much more hesitant. And doesn't that picture how we experience trouble? There are times, sometimes even within the same hour, where we are confident in God's protection, his care for us. And then just minutes later, we struggle. Does God really care, though? And so Psalm 142, in a sense, is a softer version of this confidence in God and oftentimes pictures how we perceive troubles from our perspective. Note that even though this was likely when David was on the run, he keeps his concern, his trouble, very generic. If you look down with me at verse 4, the end of verse 3, he says, there's people who are laying traps for me. We're not exactly sure what he means by that. Or like verse 4, he says, no one takes notice of me. No one is caring for my soul. Well, again, those are very generic, very generic uh, troubles. But he's doing that in part so that we can immediately relate to what he's, uh, what he's going through. We can place our own perspective, our own life in there. Notice as well that David's trouble is chiefly internal. Right? He's talking about somebody outside of him, but kind of the core of his complaint is found in verse 4, where really the struggle is that he has no support. He has no one to help him. Or if you look down at verse 7, as he kind of ends the psalm, he talks about bringing my, my soul, is actually the, the wording there, bringing my soul out of prison. There's this being brought low himself. There's an internal struggle, and that seems to be the real crux of the issue, as we'll see as we go through this. And finally, I want you to notice in verse 7, before we jump into the psalm, that deliverance has yet to come. It's still in the future. Notice what he says in verse 7. You still, he's commanding God, he's asking God, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks in your name. The righteous, and notice the next word, will surround me for you, notice the next word, will deal bountifully with me. So this is written from a place where he's yet to experience God's deliverance. These are all important observations as we enter into this psalm. And I want you to note that God deals with us realistically, doesn't he? The psalms are not naively and unrealistically blissful, right? They're practical, they're honest, they're genuine, they're realistic to how we experience life in this fallen world. Life is hard. Even when things seem to be going well from the outside, don't we all experience these kinds of troubled situations? This is exactly who God wants to speak to today. So if you are in this spot today, you're going to have a particular struggle listening to this in this sense. When you're in a place of hopelessness, Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to listen with hope, right? Because what happens if the hope falls through? And so it's easier just to say, I'm not going to really listen, or I will evaluate if God can be my help and my hope. 
that's you this morning, I'd encourage you to instead lean into the words of God this morning. Don't draw back. God's coming to you this morning, and He wants to minister to you. So lean into what He has to say. Let's look first at the first three verses. I'm just calling this the plea. And for all of those of you who love alliteration, they all start with a P, all right? Because that's what happened to make the most sense. So this first one is the plea, the cry to the Lord. Verses 1 through 3, he says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. We'll look at just this first little section, verses 1 through the first part of verse 3. I want you to know, first of all, that this cry has a lot of urgency to it. It's underscored with this phrase, with my voice, or aloud is how some translations put this. In Hebrew, it goes like this, with my voice to the Lord I cry, with my voice for mercy I plead. That's underscored by being put first in the sentence. I am crying out aloud. This is often used with like a a lament cry where someone is mourning the death of a loved one. And this is the language he uses here this loud and urgent cry to the Lord, repeated more than once to picture for us the kinds of cries we give to God over and over again, all through the night, God, I need you, I need you. This is where the psalmist finds himself. Notice also the desperateness of his cry. He says he cries, and we could translate this cry out as to cry loudly. The word is often used actually on the battlefield in the Old Testament, to cry out, to shout out. He says, I cry aloud, or the end of verse 1, I beg for mercy or plead for mercy. This is the position of a supplicant who, without the help from the one he's coming to, he has no hope. Now, I want you to note that this word cry itself is actually, it's a rare word that's not used often in the book of Psalms. It's not the regular cry for like a declaration. It's a cry that's tied to the idea of distress and seeking deliverance. It's only used five times in the book of Psalms, and two of them are in this passage. This is a cry where he's crying out loudly in acute distress. And then he talks about this begging for mercy. That's a word that has at its root, the word itself, suggests that he's appealing to kindness, appealing to God's heart, to his character. God, I know you're kind. Listen to me. I need your mercy. One more term just to call out here, that, that word complaint Um, that we'll see in verse 2. I pour out my complaint before him. That sounds kind of whiny to us, but the word itself doesn't have that connotation. It has more this idea, I have troubled thoughts. I I have these troubled thoughts that I'm bringing before you. Now, when have you cried out to God like this? What are the situations that have caused you to be like this? Haven't we all been in this place? It can be trouble with a, a child that has just broken your heart an adult child or or one in your own home where you just don't know what to do. Perhaps you or you and your spouse sit together and say, what's the next step? How are we going to respond to this? Maybe for you it's some pain or opposition at work, whether it's a boss that just seems to have it out for you or coworkers that are constantly maligning you. The kinds of things that make us cry out to God like this are just the overwhelming responsibilities of life. Perhaps it's even the routine. For years now, you've just felt like you've had too much on you. But there's no escape. What will you let go? You can't. People are depending on you, and you feel this burden. And at times, it just breaks out into a cry to God. Perhaps for you, it's something much more personal. It could even be 
angst within your own marriage or angst to be married? Aren't these the kinds of things that cause us to cry like this? Or it could just be debilitating sickness for you or a loved one. The kinds of pains that you've experienced again and again, and it's like you just almost cringe every time the phone rings because you know another one's coming. These are the kinds of things that cause us to cry out to God. And I want you to know that God hears. He does. This next section, I want to call out just the personal nature of this cry and see how the psalmist is actually instructing us even as he writes. He says twice here, verse, four, uh, verse 2, he says, before him and before him. The Hebrew is actually a little bit more picturesque here. The wording is literally before his face. I'm before his face crawling out my complaint. Twice he mentions that. I pour out my complaint before his face. I tell my trouble before his face. He pictures God right in front of him, and he's calling out to God personally. And that is how God hears you in those moments. God is not distant. God is not like a judge who sits on a throne far distant from you, and you wonder, can he hear me? No, the psalmist says, when you cry out to him, you're doing it right in front of his face. This is how God pictures himself. This word for pour out is a very visceral word. It's what was used in the temple sacrifices when they would pour out a drink offering right in front of him. It's almost always used in the Bible for physically pouring out something on the ground. This is what he says he's doing to God with his complaints. And then he mentions this idea of speaking to God or announcing to God. It's the action of a messenger. Some translations even say, I show God my trouble. I lay it out before him. God, here's what I'm going through. Do you cry out to God like that? I'm not saying should you, I'm saying do you. So often we stop short of how this psalmist is actually instructing us, even by his own action, but we have a complaint, we have a burden, but we don't really vocalize it. But God wants you to. So often our trouble is our picture of God. Do you picture God where you can speak and you're speaking to Him, to His face, before His face? How do you picture God when you come to Him? What does God think of you when you come? You ask for His help. This psalm tells us that God actually is ready to hear. He's waiting to hear these concerns, these troubles. Next, I want you to see how honest this complaint is. In two fronts, first, this could be translated very honestly as when I am ready to give up. The words are just when my spirit, when my, my, uh, my breath is actually the term, when my breath faints. It's when you do this. <sighs> when does that happen to you? You see how he's, what he's not doing is shading this. He's saying, like, there's times of just desperation where I don't know what to do. My spirit faints like breathing or panting when I breathe out. He says, you know my, my walking path is the term. You know the steps I've been taking. Now, I want you to, for a moment just to recognize the foolishness of not telling God how you feel. Now, your spouse, sometimes you can hide some things from them. But you know that you can never hide anything from God? He already knows you're there. It's actually an act of submission to say, God, I am here. And this is what the psalmist has done. I'm ready to give up. My breath has gone out of me. He says, in the end of verse um, 3 now, very importantly, in the path where I walk, or, sorry, in uh, verse 3, when my spirit faints within me, 
you know my way. And if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible, I'd encourage you to actually double underline that word you, because he doesn't just say you know my way, he actually repeats you. He says it like this, you, you yourself know my way. And that way he's reminding both God and himself, you know the path I walk. He uses a term here that means just your lifestyle. A lot of times it's used when people are defending themselves, like you know the actions I've taken and how innocent I am. And perhaps that's his idea. Or maybe it's simply, you know the steps I've been taking. I want you to think for a moment about what else the Psalms tell us about God's knowledge of us. Think of Psalm 139 where God says, every time you stand up, every time you sit down, I know it. I see it. I know your thoughts before they come into your mind. I know them afar off. This is what he's recognizing in honest humility before God. You know. You've been watching me. Your eyes have been fixed on me. God heard what was said to you. God saw the responsibilities placed on you. God knows your limitations better than you do. He made you. God has felt rejection and anger and opposition all the way to death. Jesus has experienced that. And like the book of Hebrews tells us, in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, he sympathizes with those weaknesses. He knows what it feels like to have opposition or too much on you. He knows what it's like to be kept up late at night or woken up early in the morning with people who say, I need you, I need help. He knows what it's like to have friends, his own companions, turn on him. Jesus knows the, the things you're facing. He knows what it's like to have opposition from the outside, from powers you can't control humanly. Jesus knows that. He knows the steps. Not just has he seen your steps, but he stepped them before. Psalm 142 is a very personal cry for help. I want you to next notice the problem, and this is really the core issue that he has. This is the rest of verse 3 and into chapter 4. There's this appending attack. Look at the end of verse 3. You could translate this. In the path where I walk, or as I'm walking, ahead of me as I'm walking, every path I turn, they have hidden a trap for me. This idea of hidden has embedded in the word this idea of this concept of secrecy. The trap itself is hunter terminology. And it's deliberately vague, so it deliberately applies to every one of us. He says here that it's like every time he turns a corner, he wonders, is the trap here? No, not yet. He turns to the next corner. Is this the trouble? When have you faced that? But it seems his real core concern is actually in verse 4. Because it's one thing to face trouble with help, right? With friends on either side that you can call on, but it's a totally different thing to face what he's facing in verse 4, which is complete abandonment. Verse 4 starts with a command, either to God or to us, to look, pick up your eyes, visibly look to me. And he says, look at my right-hand side. The right-hand side is a place of support. It's a place where you're supposed to look and say, who's on my right hand? Who's my right-hand man? And he looks and he says, you should look, and what you'll find is nobody. It's this kind of complete abandonment that makes the pain of whatever he's suffering much worse. And isn't that the case for us? It's one thing to go through trouble, whether it's physical or emotional, whether it's mental heartache. It's one thing to go through that with people who care for you. It's a totally different thing to experience it like this. Yet so many of us face these kinds of things again and again. He says, to look and to see. 
And he says, we could translate it like this, the place of refuge is lost to me. He actually uses that word, I've lost it. I don't know where my place of refuge is. And our, our translator here simply says, there's no refuge that remains to me. But the idea is that he had it and it's gone. He has no place to run anymore. The real trouble, though, it seems, is in the final phrase of verse 4. This seems to be the final gut punch for him and for us because he says this, no one cares for my soul. That word cares is usually translated somebody who seeks after something in the Old Testament. The soul there, some of you who might know a little bit of Hebrew might know that word nephesh, all right? It's soul or life. He says, nobody is searching after or inquiring about the real me. I'll pass people who casually say, how you're doing? But nobody asks. Nobody seeks after it. This is such a common experience for so many of us, but I want to encourage you again where he started, and that is he cried out to God, because that's actually where we'll find the solution. Let's turn our attention to the way he phrases this, and he simply phrases it like this, that God is more than enough, calling this section his portion. Verse 5 is the second time he uses that word cry, that word cry that's only used a few times in the book of Psalms that means to cry out in distress or anguish when you have no help. And he says, I cry, and now he turns deliberately to God. He cries to you, O Lord, and he uses God's personal name, which means God is present. O Lord, he says to him, the present one. He repeatedly cries out in distress. And he acknowledges two things about God that are the solution that he's waiting for. That God, and he uses the same word, is his refuge. The one he said he misplaced, he doesn't know where it's at, he's lost it, it's lost to him. He says, God, you are that. You are my refuge, in verse 5, my portion in the land of the living. This refuge is a place of protection, a place of comfort. And this allotted portion is, again, a very visceral, physical word. It was a word that was used when the people came into the promised land and each of them had a portion of land. He says, God, you're the plot of land that was given to me. You are my inheritance. Like Psalm 16, verse 5 said, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. In other words, the thing I got was you. You're actually the solution to this, he says. One translation says it like this, you are all I want. You're all I need. He's more than enough. Now, I want you to think a moment, put yourself in the place of the psalmist. Perhaps you're there even this morning. What do we need in these kinds of places where we feel abandoned, we feel hopeless, we have nowhere to turn, we feel alone, and like every corner, we're just waiting for the next shoe to drop? What we really need is a few things. First, we need somebody just to be there. Isn't that a ministry to you in those moments? Sometimes you'll have people, perhaps they're quieter in their spirits, but they will come and just be near you. They don't have any wise words of wisdom for you, but their presence alone is a ministry. Jesus himself is that to us. This is what the psalmist is saying. Every step I take, your eyes watched it. You're there. Jesus himself says as much in Matthew 28. Behold, I am with you always. What we also need is somebody who's just consistent, somebody we can rely on. And so Jesus himself in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 8, says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always the same. Even when you're different, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, First Timothy tells us. 
Finally, you need somebody who actually has the power and care to do something about it. I'd encourage you, if you want to know how God has used his own, his own people who are in these kinds of states of distress, especially if it's caused by other people, I'd encourage you to look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 64. There's a phrase, there's a section in there, a verse in there, that you might know well, but you may not know the context. Let me see if you know this. Where God says this, From of old no one has perceived or heard, nor I has seen what God will do for those who wait for him. Have you heard that before? It's actually in the context of God rising up to defend people. He says this in the book of uh, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your main name known among your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard, nor perceived by the ear, nor I has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. It's in that context that God says, I will defend my own. If you, like the psalmist here, there's some pressure, and it's not just internal, it's also external, like he mentions a few times in the psalm. Know that God can and will avenge you. He will protect you. The solution then in this psalm is not individual knowledge about what God will do in this circumstance, but who God is for me. God, you see each step I take. You, you yourself know that way. You've experienced that way. God, you care for me, so you are my refuge. You're actually the lot I need. What I don't need is for all my problems to be taken away. What I don't need is for all my burdens to be lifted. What I need is you with me in them. It's God himself who is the comfort to the psalmist. It's God himself who will be the comfort to you. And finally, I want you to look at the psalmist's prospect. He's looking to God's answer. And he gives three commands or requests of God. Verse 6, he starts with this, attend to my cry. Or we could translate like this, pay attention carefully. Pay attention carefully. Pay close attention to my cry. And the word cry is a different word. It actually means to lament, to mourn. Pay attention, God, he says. Secondly, he says, deliver me from other people. In the end of verse 6, deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. And finally, he says, bring me out of prison. Now, this is either physically, like he's in a cave and he wants to get out, which could be the case, because, again, the superscription says he, he might be in a cave. But I think there's actually something more going on. If I were to translate this word for word for what the Hebrew says, he says, bring my life. It's the same word he used earlier when he said, no one looks after my life, my soul, my real me. Bring the real me out of prison. Bring my soul out of prison. And isn't that what it feels like? When you're in this kind of location, it feels like being in prison. You can't get out. But he says, God, you take me out of this place. Take me out of prison. So it's likely, I think, metaphorical. He says, here's what will happen. Here's the result. It will result in thanksgiving to God, that I may give thanks to your name. And again, notice he's yet to experience this, but having rehearsed what God is like towards him, that God is there, that God observes, that he's before his face, he knows this. God, you can bring out the real me. He does have somebody who cares for his soul who looks after his soul, who seeks, who inquires about his soul. And it's God himself. And so do you. 
No one knows the inner you, not even the ones closest to you, not even yourself, as much as God knows you. And then notice how he looks to future hope. And this hope has two different angles to it. He says, the righteous will surround me, for you deal bountifully with me. Both of those things are important. Notice who he said he had nobody, right? He had nobody around him. But now he says, I know what will happen. I'll have who? Not just God around him, other people, right? He's actually looking forward to God's ministry through others. Others, companionship and support. The righteous, those who listen to God, they will surround me, he says. Already he's turned his eyes to hope, although it has not yet come. Now here he says at the end, and I think this is such a picturesque language, he says, for you will deal bountifully with me. Now this word itself is a little challenging to translate. And actually, believe it or not, it's usually used in the context of a child who has been weaned. You might say, well, what, what does he mean here? The idea is satisfaction. In fact, I have Psalm 131, verse 2. If you want to just turn real briefly with me to that. I don't remember if I had it up on the screen, did I? Oh, I did. All right. All right. Well, Psalm 131, verse 2. He says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. This is the same word. This picture is like this. God has so comforted me that it's like the difference of a, a child who is not yet weaned and desperately screaming out for food and a child who instead has been weaned and can sit quietly with mom. He says, that's what my heart's like. That's what God wants for us. That's what Psalm 142 ends like. God, this is how you'll deal with me. I'll be satisfied and at rest before you. This, this outcome is what God wants for you. And notice how none of these, this man's problems have not vanished, right? They're not gone from him. What is it that's turned his heart towards looking for this hope? It's not his circumstances changing. It's not his own ability changing. Nowhere in here do you see that he is going to change this. It's actually God's heart that he spent time meditating on. There is a cautiousness to this, isn't there? But there's a truth to it that rings all the way through the text. As we end here, I want to just encourage you with a few closing applications. First of all, I want to encourage you to be quick to pour out your full heart to God. God already knows your trouble. He knows it from experience. Christ himself faced all weaknesses like we do, the book of Hebrews tells us. He knows what it's like. He really does. You have a sympathetic ear. That's the word used in the book of Hebrews. There's somebody who's ready to listen to you, who knows what it feels like. So be quick to pour out your heart to God. Make one of those paths that God watches the path that runs to Him and make it well-worn so He sees you coming right to Him every time you have trouble. God does not tire of you coming to Him like that. Secondly, would you rehearse God's care of you? That's what the psalmist did, isn't it? He says, God, you've seen my steps. God, I'm crying before your face. God isn't distant but personal and up close, and experience this almost, experiencing this almost with him. I've taken to reading a lot to my children, and right now we are working our way through the Chronicles of Narnia. So if you had Pastor Chris mention something by C.S. Lewis on your bingo card today, that's, you're, you can check that off. One of my favorite 
books in that series is one that's not used, read very often. It's called The Horse and His Boy. I'll give you a brief summary because at the end, there's something that really resonates with this text. This boy who's been brought up by a man he doesn't know, just uh, he was found as a small child, is then figures out where he really belongs. And through the course of the book is running across the desert, being chased by lions, fought off all kinds of things, and is finally arriving to the land where he belongs. And as he arrives there, the great lion Aslan meets him. If you know anything about the story, you know that Aslan is, in a sense, kind of the Christ figure. And this boy is rehearsing all of the trouble he's been through. Throughout the entire episode, the, the whole book, he's been chased to and fro by enemies, by lions, have been chasing him through the desert, all through the night, redirecting his path. And he's rehearsing this and mourning about this, complaining to, this, to the lion next to him. And the lion turns to him and he says, I was the lion. I was the one directing your path the whole way. This boy has just met Aslan for the first time and didn't know him in the past. He describes to him, he says, I was the lion who forced you to join with your friend. He had actually chased him together, caused difficulty in his life to bring him to another friend, who then they went through the journey together. He says, I was the lion who at night, he had spent a night in the desert with jackals attacking him and something fought them off. He says, that was me. He says, I was the lion who at the last mile of the race out into Narnia, where he was trying to get to, the lion chased them the whole way. He said, I was the lion who chased you for the last mile for fear so that you would reach your destination in time. He said, I was the lion who, when you were a small baby, actually pushed the boat to the shore so that you would be saved. In this moment, this revelation at the end of the book shows this boy, Shasta is his name, that Aslan had actually been there the whole time. He had been at every step of the way. And it's only now he recognizes the adversity, the struggle I had been through was actually not just observed by Aslan, but guided by him. But he was there with me. He directed me. In a very similar way, God has cared for us just like that, hasn't he? God hasn't been at a distant watch, distance watching us, but he's been the one to bring friends into our lives when we needed them. He's been the one to bring trials into our life. He chose those for us. He wasn't distant, and we had to go tell them about him about him. He knew. He sent them to us. But it was for our good. Perhaps for you, you look at the things that God has brought, and part of coming to God is actually submitting to him about those things. You say, God... I don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, but I bow to you. You get to be God, not me. I don't have to know everything you are doing or why you're doing everything you're doing. I have to know you. Thirdly, I'd encourage you to rest in God as all you need. When you rehearse your troubles, you no doubt also rehearse the solutions. If they would just, right, if this situation would just be gone, if my daughter would just, you're rehearsing not just the troubles, right? You rehearse the solutions. The psalmist actually teaches us the solution to look for, though. He says, what I really need is to be satisfied in God so that even if the world crumbles around me, my feet will have something solid to stand on. What I really need is God. And that's a hard thing to preach to yourself, isn't it? Because we don't do that naturally. None of us do. All of us naturally say the, the solution is outside of me, 
but it's not God. And God says, actually, I am what you need. There's a reason throughout all of this psalm, the psalmist is constantly referencing the Lord. You might see that in all caps. When he uses that all caps in your Bible, it's actually the word for God, Yahweh, which means the ever-present one, the ever-living one. He's there. God really is all we need. Finally, God's care so often comes through others. So let others surround you with God's care. You might say, I feel all alone. Let me encourage you. The righteous want to surround you now. But part of them surrounding you is you being willing to be open and needy. So maybe today you say, you know what? That's how I feel. Can I say to you that one of God's answers to you is actually the people in this room? But that requires something from us. It requires a kind of openness and honesty and humility with each other that is hard to come by. But it does satisfy in the end because that's God's care for you. If you had a medical need, so often you would turn to a doctor. That doctor is God's care for you. They may not even know it. They may not be knowledgeable in it, but their actions are actually God's actions. They are God's hands to you. When you have a physical need, you turn to a physical help. When you have financial need, you'll turn to an expert, and that person's care is actually God caring for you through them. Can I encourage you that when you see help from the outside, from others, that you attribute that to God, he actually is surrounding you with others. But that requires a certain vulnerability and openness from us. When you're ready to give up, the psalmist says, look to who God is. And what you'll find is that in the end, like he says in verse 7, you can get to a place of calm, quiet rest, like a weaned child sitting on his mother's lap. That's what God wants for you. Would you pray with me as we end today? God, so often we struggle in these kinds of in these times of life. And a lot of the struggle is simply admitting that we need help and turning to you. I pray that we would be quick to run to you, to not hesitate for even a second, but to pour out every complaint before you, to speak openly to you, and then to rehearse your care for us, even when it seems unseen. Help us to find you as the solution. So it's so easy for us to be cynical about that, but help us to bow to you. And finally, help us to to let others extend your care to us through their ministry. So help us to be vulnerable and open with each other, to ask for help from each other, and be ministered to by each other for your sake. Thank you that you do not leave us alone when we're ready to give up, but you run to us. This morning you have run to us. And so help us to accept your care. In Christ's name, amen.